0: Hello, listeners. I hope this podcast finds you all safe and healthy during this COVID 19 crisis. I hope you are all practicing the most vigilant social distancing possible. It does save lives. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, Andrew talks to us about the new figures from the Bureau of Economic Analysis on income inequality and what these figures mean for the commonly heard claim that income inequality rose dramatically during the neoliberal era. We'll also use our current events segment to discuss Trumpism and post-truth during the COVID-19 pandemic. <music> to hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, read more about the issues discussed or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. Please also consider making a donation on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI.
1: In this segment today, we're going to be talking about uh, one aspect of the uh, coronavirus, whatever you can call it, uh, plague. Um, And specifically, President Donald J. Trump promoting this miracle malaria cure to fight uh, the coronavirus. Uh, It's called chloroquine and goes together with another drug. Over the past 24 hours, as we're recording this, a man took it because he had it, uh, killed algae, in his fish tank or whatever. And his wife took it and she's really ill.
0: And just to be clear, the guy died.
1: But back on Friday, Trump was was hawking this possible cure for coronavirus at his daily coronavirus task force show. Reporters get to ask questions and Trump gets to attack them and stuff. You know, after Trump is promoting his miracle cure here, saying it's a possibility and, you know, maybe everything's going to be great. This is the same man who said back towards the end of February, we got 15 cases and in a few days it'll be down to zero. So Peter Alexander, who's a reporter from NBC, said, "Uh, is it possible that your impulse to put a positive spin on things may be giving Americans a false sense of hope? And Trump says, no, I don't think so. Uh, he goes on, uh, and this is not a drug, obviously, I think I can speak for, from a lot of experience, because it's been out there for 20 years, so it's not a drug that you have a huge amount of danger with. It's not like a brand new drug that's just been created that may have unbelievable monumental effects like kill you. But right now, in terms of malaria, if you want it, you could have a prescription. You get a prescription, and by the way, and it's very effective. It works. Uh, I'm not being overly optimistic or pessimistic. I sure as hell think we ought to give it a try. I mean, there's been some interesting things happen and some good, very good things. So then Peter Alexander asks, So what do you say to Americans who are scared, I guess? Nearly 200 dead and 14,000 who are sick and millions, as you witness, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? And Trump says, I say that you are a terrible reporter. I think it's a very nasty question. I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. They're looking for answers, and they're looking for hope. Uh, you know, and there's a little bit more of that. That really struck me. You know, Peter Peter Alexander saying, you know, aren't you giving people false hope? And Trump saying, American people are looking for hope.
0: Yeah, it's very disturbing, and it's just... Uh... I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect Trump to do because his only M.O. is to be a snake oil salesman. That's the only thing he knows how to do is to, Mm. you know, shine some shit and call it Shinola. He's just a total fraud. And the idea of taking something seriously and having to do hard work. Or do anything that might make him look um, bad or not like a fearless leader. He just wants to uh, suppress or sweep under the table. I mean, the entire response to this has just been attempting to cover up something that can't be covered up. You know, not testing people so that his numbers will look good, delaying the response so that the res you know so that people won't be alarmed or feel like there's a problem. I mean, his. He's fundamentally incapable of operating like an effective leader, and so all he can do is just keep acting like the asinine, pompous piece of shit he is, and you know, 2.2 million people are gonna die. I mean, I think we just have to resign, This, there's, there's, we're not gonna say, you can't turn this around at this point. This is gonna be an un, unprecedented disaster, and um, he's frightened, he knows that potentially his head and other people's heads are gonna be on stakes at the end of this thing, but all he knows how to do is, is just keep operating like he always does.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm not so sure that he's not going to get away with it. I mean, the reason he does this is that, you know, try to spin things, try to make everything work to his advantage, create whatever narratives. It has worked for him all his whole life. It worked for him uh, with regard to the Mueller report. This kind of thing has, has worked for him again and again. You know, he's not the smartest guy in the world, so I won't, I, I, you know, maybe he doesn't understand why a virus might be different. Um, But if you look at the opinion polls, his popularity hasn't gone down. In fact, it's gone up a bit over this. And when he was telling everybody it was a hoax uh, and it was another creation by the Democrats to get him, his people were believing that, you know, and they weren't going out evidently and buying hand sanitizer. There's some evidence that, you know, in Trump areas they weren't. Uh, And then when he switches gears, you know, a lot of them switch gears. But I'll tell you, I think that uh, this death, you know, yesterday from um, people ingesting this uh, chloroquine uh, malaria cure and just Trump's whole behavior regarding this, uh, it really puts into sharp relief uh, the whole issue of truth like nothing else has done. Uh, And and this goes to the whole tradition also of postmodernism, you know, where people have certain... Traditional ways of of knowing and, and and quote knowing close quote you know and it makes them feel good and so forth. Well, that's what Trump is about. He's about making people feel good. Okay, we're, we're, we have a stark choice being offered us at, at, in these in these task force conferences. There's there's Fauci and the what's her name Burks, you know, and the other scientists and and and, and doctors. And they're doing science, they're doing medicine, they're they're fact-based, and you have Trump, you know, and and he's he's providing hope and 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 his deflections and everything, and we're being offered a stark choice. I mean, that's the problem. You know, you can believe Trump or you can believe them, and I'm just worried that a lot of people might go for yeah, you know, we we, we want hope. I'm not sure that he's wrong at all, and I think that, that he, I, I don't I don't think that was just a an offhand or spontaneous comment on his part. I think he was reflecting earlier in this exchange with Alexander, you know, aren't you giving people a false sense of hope? And he's like, people want hope. I'm here to give people what they want. People want hope, and that's the secret of my success. And I, I think we're going to see, I don't know which way it's going to come down, but 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 I, th- I do think we're going to see a really stark choice between... Are we going to go with facts? Are we going to go with the truth? Or are we going to create, you know, a, 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 a narrative that we find comforting? What, what, this, what this has showed is that this, this narrative that people find comforting, it kills. This is the problem with post-truth. It kills. Okay? And p- people have got to get this through their heads. You know, it's not only the right, it's not only Trump, it's the left as well. A lot of people peddling, you know, narratives that, that seem good to themselves and others.
0: One thing we talked about before is that not everyone who supports Trump and retweets Trump and refers to his arguments actually believes everything he says. They just like the fact that someone's saying them, Um, especially, you know, if they can get sort of a, a, a giddy pleasure out of the fact that he's sticking it to the liberals or saying something politically incorrect that they wish they could say in polite society. But it's not that they actually believe what he says in the way that you believe that the earth is round. But in this sort of situation, I think, like you were saying, the, the stakes are so high that, that you are pushed to actually believe or not believe in the a, in a sense of truth, not just what you feel like believing because it's an idea that makes you feel good about yourself. And I, I suspect that as people start to die, I mean, every, <clears throat> everyone in this country is going to know someone who dies of this thing, maybe multiple people. And that's going to have a profound effect on the way people uh, relate to this question. Um, I mean, are they still going to believe that it's a, uh, a hoax, a liberal hoax? when close friends are dying you know are they still going to believe that the malaria drugs can cure this thing when they go to the hospital and the doctors say this can't cure what you what you have and by the way we're out of the drug because everyone's ordering it you know they're going to be like real consequences for people you know or people are going to like go to you know if, if when their pastor says oh it's a liberal hoax everyone come to church today and then everyone two weeks later from that congregation is all in an overflowing ICU where they're at events, maybe they'll actually be, they'll be up against like the hard reality and have to reevaluate things with sober senses. Um, But we'll see. I mean, you know, propaganda and spin can do a lot, but I don't, it's hard to spin your way out of 2.2 million people dying.
1: Yes. You can't spin your way out of 2.2 million people dying. The question is, will that fact re lead people to reevaluate their theories uh, and their ways of understanding the world, uh, and in, in many cases, that's what's needed to make sense of the, the facts about the the you know the great number of deaths and so forth. A, a lot of people don't have right now the theories and the understandings of the world that are in tune with reality. They, they they've, they've got you know these f- false narratives. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you preclude certain kinds of explanations, okay, because it doesn't fit with your, your, your standpoint, then you're going to be driven to other things like conspiracy theories. And, of course, you know, Trump, besides the hoax theory, he's got the, you know, calling it the China virus, right? And this could get very, very nasty against Chinese people, against Chinese Americans, other Asian Americans, and, and, and God knows what. Also, I mean, on the on the right, especially among religious people, you know, fundamentalists, you, you, you have this view that, like, well, you know, bad things happen, and this is the way of the world, and, you know, it's God's will, or whatever it is, and, you know, we just can't make everything better, when, in fact, of course, we can make things better. This could have been prevented. I mean, Trump is really uh, guilty of... of of criminal negligence at this point
0: yeah criminal negligence on a massive scale
1: massive massive scale i mean er, early testing like they did in south korea could have stopped so much of the the acceleration of the the growth of and and we wouldn't have even needed you know this massive social distancing and so forth uh horrible criminal negligence but i mean people will, will know that there are that there are deaths but it's not you know I I don't know that they will get to the point of saying you know this could have been prevented and Trump is to blame for his criminal negligence here
0: maybe it could be I mean we'll 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 see you could be right I don't know I don't know at this point it seems so screamingly obvious to me that he's to fault but I know people live in other alternative alternative media realities and they hear very different information so i don't it's hard for me to process um you know maybe once everyone at fox news is dead from the coronavirus there won't be anyone to spin this shit um uh, i i don't i don't know right uh, i
1: i have a lot of respect for uh anthony Fauci, the doctor he's the head of some some institute and i understand he's up against a very difficult problem. He's trying to get out to the public. Here's the information. Here are the real facts. And the way he's decided to do it is to try to like also get Trump's ear maybe to go there and participate in these, you know, daily Trump shows on the on the coronavirus and what he he wasn't there Fauci yesterday but what you get again and again is Trump saying one thing and Fauci contradicting him without saying he's contradicting him on the other hand so the the the, the, the doctors and, and and the experts say one thing Trump says something completely different and the two versions just sit there side by side you know and i think Fauci thinks like either that's going to be effective or at least that's the best he can do but but it, to my mind that is the problem is that we get people are given a choice of narratives and they get to choose on the basis of however they want to choose. You know, so Fauci was asked about this on Sunday. He goes, Well, I'm, I'm, re- I'm reading this. He says, I was taking a purely medical scientific standpoint. Okay. And President was coming at it from a hope layperson standpoint. I don't know what the hell a, low, a hope layperson standpoint yeah. is. <laughs> okay. First of all, but. I
0: think he means a moron.
1: <laughs> Snake oil salesman, I guess. Yeah. Uh like you said, but this is this is this is postmodernism to say, well, there's one standpoint, there's another standpoint. Yeah, yeah there's one standpoint which is correct and there's another standpoint which is complete shit. But this and, is but this yeah. is
0: Fauci basically just saying, Yeah, he's he's a moron, but this is the best this is the extent to which I can say he's a fucking moron. Don't listen to him. Right. You I mean, can't say that he'll get fired. You know, this is everyone who works for the man is stuck in this Faustian bargain where they, th- they think they can somehow exert a positive influence, but they're just, and, and without, you know, uh, offending the leader and getting fired, but they're just sucked into the downward spiral of his insanity. We've seen it with all sorts of people, uh, who have had you know who worked for him this is the most sympathetic person because really someone has to do this job or else you know it's going to the consequences are going to be disastrous so someone has to do this but it's an impossible position to be put in
1: right i think i think you're absolutely right i mean this it, the, fauci is not really there in a political role but this goes along with kelly mcmaster uh, Person after person who was going to be the adults in the room, and it it never worked, exerted moderating influence on the guy. No, you know, it 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 it, it doesn't work. And uh, you know, whatever happened to not normalizing this person? I mean, you know, I mean, Fauci could. I I'm not I'm not even trying to second guess him, but I'm I'm just trying to say that like there are options available to him. Like, you know, the number one public health problem in the world right now is this motherfucker standing right next to me, you know, grab him, lock him up, put him under observation. He's sick as hell. And maybe that, maybe that, you know, would do more to save lives.
0: Well, that seems like a good note for ending our current event section. Up next, we will be discussing income inequality and the new figures from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. So, Andrew, you've been telling me that you're very excited that the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, is finally going to be publishing annually, statistics about income inequality in the U.S.
1: As you know, and as I think most people know, uh, inequality in the U.S., income inequality has become a very big issue over the past 20 years, uh, and that's largely the result of uh, the work of Thomas Piketty, Emmanuel Saez, uh, and, and, and Gabriel Zuckman. And, you know, in some quarters, what Piketty-Saya Zuckman say is just accepted as, like, you know, this is the way reality is, is the final word. But their stuff is very controversial. Uh, There was a four-page article in The Economist. You know, coming from London uh, back in the fall, a couple weeks ago, the New York Times carried uh, a big story on this controversy. And so their stuff has become more and more controversial among economists. And what we have seen in the past, you know, uh, five to ten years in particular, is increasing controversy, increasing proliferation of approaches you know, and different measurements of inequality and who you're counting and how you're counting them. And since the Bureau of Economic Analysis is the U.S. government and, you know, its it's figures, its numbers are accepted as authoritative, basically, I think the entire situation is looking as if in the not distant future, this entire debate and the exalted uh, standing of Piketty and Saez and Zuckman is going to come to an end. Uh, and we're going to be getting inequality statistics that we're going to like just say, okay, this is the way it is in the same way that we get gross domestic product statistics. We don't have people, here's my gross domestic product, and, you know, I don't think we should measure gross domestic product. I think we should measure gross uh, domestic happiness or, you know, net national happiness. I mean, there is that kind of stuff, you know, as well. But by and large, there's not a huge degree of controversy. So I, I really think that... Um, both among researchers and economists generally, but also the the media and among the public, um, we're going to be facing a very different situation uh, in the near future regarding how we think about and talk about equality and inequality.
0: So the BEA, of course, releases all sorts of statistics about economic things in this country. So why has this not been reported on before and why are they doing it now?
1: Yeah, I, I I did not know this uh, until I began to read the recent stuff. These these you know statistics just came out earlier this month, but the original idea of national income accounting, national income and product accounting, uh, was to have both growth statistics, you know, measuring the levels of different things in the in the aggregate for the whole economy, and to have uh, figures for the, how this income and stuff is divvied up the distribution across the population, but they didn't have the, um, the available data to do that. And so even now, when the Bureau of Economic Analysis has released these prototype statistics, they only extend as far back as the year 2007. Um, and the Bureau of Economic Analysis says, well, you know, one of the data sets that we need to rely on uh, to do our estimations, only goes back to, to 2007. You know, so they they didn't feel secure about going back further. I think it had to do with Medicare or Medicaid. There's there's some figures that are not there. I mean, we know the totals for the whole country, but we whatever they use to divide the uh, benefits that the people receive it's very difficult you know like what 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 does the, the bottom 10% of the population get what does the next 20 uh, next 10% you know get and so forth you, you need a lot of data that you 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 don't need just to do the other stuff about the, the totals throughout the economy you need a lot of additional data to be able to do that uh, even to estimate it so that they just didn't have it i mean you know look there are people who produce inequality statistics going back to the the, the 19th century but their stuff is not at the level of, well, it's a lot more iffy. It's a lot more speculative than, than, than anything that the, the Bureau of Economic Analysis would, would want to publish. Uh, Jamie Galbraith, an economist at the University of Texas, son of uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, he pointed out that on the, the, the Piketty, Sias, Suckman, etc. website, the World, in Economy, the World Inequality Database, um, they've got a figure for one country on, you know, something about the, the share of income of, of, of such and such a group, and they draw it as a flat line, you know, meaning it hasn't increased or decreased throughout time. And what is the data that allows them to do this? They've got one data point. They've got one year. And they drew a line through one point, okay, right? How how many possible lines could go through that one point, right? And and then how many possible curves? So you're dealing with infinity and another infinity, you know. So you you can, if if that's the way you deal with things, you can produce, you know, whatever measures you want. But, you know, the the BEA has certain standards.
0: Um, well, let's try to break this down for people. Can we? What exactly is the Bureau of Economic Analysis?
1: It's part of the Department of Commerce. So it's an official government agency. And this is the agency that produces the statistics on gross domestic product, GDP, that come out every quarter, you know, and are revised every month. Uh, and that is the key concept behind all of the national income and product accounts that the bureau of economic analysis uh, reports on okay but you know there are various components Uh, of the the gross domestic product and there are actually three sets of 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 accounts for this one having to do with spending one having to do with receipt of income one having to do with value added in production Uh, they also keep international accounts and so forth so there's just an absolute massive amount of data that they're you know continually updating and tracking uh and it's all you know all, all publicly available uh, on this very massive website that they have, that actually works extremely well. The you know the apps and stuff uh, to to get hold of the statistics work extremely well compared, for instance, to what goes on in Britain, where you know you you can't get decent statistics.
0: Uh, so the BEA tracks GDP and they have and other economic uh, figures, and they have a huge and well organized database of stuff to draw on. Um, so, the the hope is that the income inequality figures they produce will be very reliable, more reliable than other um, people who are currently trying to estimate these things with, with other means.
1: Perhaps. I mean, there are, there are people who, who, who have done similar stuff. I mean, I've looked at what the BEA is doing and they're drawing on many, many different sources of information uh you know various uh, I mean there various surveys that are conducted and and, and you know just uh, different administrative agencies of the government so they're pulling together uh, data uh, and uh, estimation techniques from a variety of sources and blending them all together um, but I, I think that they they they're going to have better resources to to do this on a regular basis, um, whereas other people you know they can basically do it, but you know they 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 can't keep doing it. The BEA's got a lot of people employed, but I think that, that the the real takeaway here is you're going to have a government agency saying you know here's how we do it. They're, they're going to publish. Um, explanations of what they do that are much clearer than what the other researchers have done Um, because it's going to be for the, you know, the the educated general public. We're going to have a better understanding of what's done and this is just going to be reported, you know, in the same way that you now hear, you know, the Census Bureau said that the money income of uh, the median household did this or that. You're going to hear similar things from uh, you know, the the government, the uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis reported today that blah, 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 blah. Um, so this will be, you know, there's good aspects and bad aspects, but I think it, that the real thing will be to establish some sort of baseline where people say, okay, this is what the government says, and, you know, you might get some debate about it, just like people will debate... Um, you know, the extent of inflation or something like that, or, you know, they might want some, some other measure. But, I mean, even people, for instance, who don't like the, um, the official measure of un- the unemployment rate take into account what is said to be the official unemployment rate, right? I mean, nobody just ignores it and says, look, I'm going to come up with my own unemployment rate. Uh, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which says this is the official one, they also produce five alternative ones, you know, five other measures of labor under utilization, you know. So at least you have a, a, a systematic, organized, methodical way of dealing with these issues and talking about them uh, instead of what has happened, you know, especially in the past five or 10 years, as I was saying, just a proliferation of approaches all really being based on people's suspicions that there's something seriously wrong with what Piketty and Saez had done, uh, and then co- them coming back and revising their approach and people finding criticisms, you know, things to criticize there. The, the whole discussion of inequality just got really out of order, you know, just just it just grew and became unwieldy.
0: So is this, ne- this new uh, initiative by the BEA to produce these statistics on inequality, is this a response to... The uh, the Piketty and Sa- Saez and Zuckman um, stuff and the controversy around their their work.
1: Um, I I think in some sense it is, but not 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 exact not exactly. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of the chronology. The first Piketty and Saez work, you know, which. Reported that there was a huge U-turn um, in the 20th century uh, where the, the U starts to turn up again, really at the start of neoliberalism, where the share of income held by the top 1% just begins to skyrocket once again. Um, you know, everybody's seen that famous graph. Uh, that comes in around the beginning of the, the, the new millennium, around, around 2000, 2000, 2001, and um, by, I think, 2015 or 2016, though, uh, the criticisms had become so great uh, and so widespread uh, that Piketty and Sias threw in the towel you know, they admitted that, I think it was 2016, they admitted that uh, their statistics, you know, this U-turn graph and all the rest, that the approach that they had used to measure the the income of the the top 1%, and by implication, everybody else, um, this was not adequate for talking about the distribution of income. The way they had measured income and the other things made what they were doing not appropriate for talking about the distribution of income or the growth of the income of the median household and so forth. So they threw in the towel. Okay? In particular, what they had done was to use a very, very narrow definition of income. That it did not include a whole lot of different things. They threw in the towel at that point. This was you know, only a few years ago. Okay, but when they throw in the towel a few years ago, they immediately picked up another towel. Okay, so they they didn't give in, but they said, okay, we have a whole new approach. And they said, look, our new approach is distributional national accounting. And so the, the new aspect was, of that was they're going to produce uh, distributional data, in other words, inequality data, keyed, you know, tied to the concepts in the national accounts, national income accounting, you know, the statistics in the U.S. are by this same BEA. So they began to do this, uh, I think, you know, 2016 or so. So they... Produced what they called the a prototype distributional national account, and they've been updating it. And people have come in and criticized them uh, Gerald Lawton and, and David Splinter, and so they have, in effect, produced uh, a, a different uh, distributional national account. But um, the people at the BEA actually began to work on this project or to think about it even earlier during the period where Piketty and Saez were still dealing with uh, their very narrow definition of income uh, and, you know, before their distributional national account approach, you know, before they had thrown in the towel. So, you know, there's an early work by one of the people involved here. I think he's the chief economist at the Bureau of Economic Analysis. You know, he and some others have a paper from uh, 2014 where they lay out, um, you know, this perspective of producing uh, national accounts that, that show the distribution uh, of personal income. And, you know, they say, look, this has always been a goal. So part of it is motivated by the fact that, I, I don't think it's a direct response to Piketty and Saez, but it's a response to the fact that the work of Piketty and Saez, and then the, the journalistic coverage of it and Occupy and everything else made inequality a big issue. And, you know, the perceived need to have regular and authoritative statistics on the
0: matter. <laughs> So Andrew in case it's not clear to our listeners we should really spell out why this is crucial politically and philosophically to um understand this question you talked earlier about this claim by Piketty and Saez that there was this U-turn during the neoliberal era and the uh the the curve and that income inequality skyrocketed during this era and that empirical claim is often we, we see that as part of the narrative that neoliberal ideas and neoliberal politicians were um, to blame for the social ills of the neoliberal era and that the neoliberal era was really qualitatively different than other types of capitalist societies and that if we had a social democratic state with more egalitarian ideas and leaders, we, we could sort of escape a- a from the problems of neoliberalism and there's this sort of conflation of neoliberalism and capitalism that goes on. But indeed if it's true that um, that that this empirical claim about income inequality during the neoliberal era is incorrect, then that takes away some of that and factual basis for that this narrative about neoliberalism that we hear so much on the left today.
1: You you you've you've, you've done you've done it you've done a good job. Everything you're saying is, is right but, but there's a little bit more. Tell me the more. Um, the more is that even within this so-called period of neoliberalism, what other researchers found prior to Piketty and Saez, and so they, they were you know really departing from a consensus view, um, what other researchers found was that there was indeed uh, a sharp rise in income inequality in the 1980s but that there had been much, much less uh, rise in inequality from the early 90s onward till about, uh, you know, the the Great Recession. Okay, so what that seems to indicate then is that this kind of like idea of attributing everything to some political management of the economy, neoliberalism, doesn't work. Because there's obviously other things going on that need to be looked at. Why did inequality rise in the 1980s? And then um, you get some more of a rise, but not that much more of a rise from the early 90s, uh, you know, over the the next uh, decade and a half. So this kind of like unicausal explanation of what's going on. Ah, it's all to be blamed on neoliberalism. That doesn't cut it uh, if one could, uh, you know, depend on the statistics that the other researchers were putting out. And basically everybody other than Piketty and Sias were putting out statistics that looked really different from theirs. Uh, And it's not a surprise because the other studies used a different database as their main database uh, from Piketty and Sias. Everybody else was using the, the current population Population Survey, uh, which is a joint project of the Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Uh, Piketty and Sias were looking at uh, data from the Internal Revenue Service, uh, tax return data. Okay, so you get two different data sets from different parts of the government done in very different ways. Uh, one's a survey where you go ask people, the other is, okay, here they reported on their tax returns, and, you know, that might have certain advantages, because if they lie, they can, you know, uh, be fined and locked up, and so forth. Um, but, yeah, you got you got two different sources, and, and, and they give you two different sets of figures, but it's also, it also has to do with the fact that different things are being counted, uh, and the, the different people are being counted in different ways, and so forth. So, Um, But to go back to the issue of of neoliberalism, yeah. I mean, the extent of the rise in inequality under neoliberalism, if it's not as big as Piketty and Sayes said, and they admitted, you know, they have admitted since they threw in the towel and picked up the new towel, they admitted that they had exaggerated. That's their term. Their earlier approach exaggerated the increase in inequality. Um, But over and above that, there's also the idea that um, if you get a substantial moderation of the upward trend in inequality Uh, from the early 90s onward, uh, it becomes clear that you can't just like trot out a unicausal explanation for the rise in inequalities, all neoliberalism and things like, you know, the the changed nature of the global economy and the changed nature of uh, the the labor market and the kinds of jobs we have. There's a lot of things going on. But it becomes clear that that this unicausal explanation and uh, the ability to uh, blame one political enemy is kind of like threadbare.
0: So the B 8 isn't calling what they're releasing uh, income inequality statistics. They're calling them distributional national accounts. What is that term?
1: This is a term, I think it was coined by Piketty, Saez, Zuckman when they came out with theirs. They called it Distributional National Accounts, DINA. The concept of national accounts, that's the concept with which the Bureau of Economic Analysis and other uh, agencies in other countries work. So what they do is uh, manage, uh, report on um, national accounts. It's a national accounting agency. Um, And, you know, in fact, the accounts uh, are um, the the name given to them in the United States by the Bureau of Economic Analysis is the National Income and Product Accounts, NEPA or NIPA, National Income and Product Accounts. So they're providing just like you would provide an account, you know, for or accounts for a company. You're doing this for the whole country. Okay, so it's national. It, It covers the entire country. Uh, and it's meant to be a comprehensive um, body of information regarding income to pull in all sources of income from production, okay? Because that, that's, the, that's the other key concept. It's national income and product accounts. So the idea is we're looking at uh, the value of production, spending on produced goods and services, and um, income generated in production and then distributed, I mean, there, there is, for instance, spending on things that are not produced goods and services, like stocks and bonds, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of buying and selling, but, but, you know, you can get income and so forth. But uh, what, what they're looking at is uh, the, the value added in production of goods and services, uh, the spending on those produced goods and services, and the income generated um, and distributed through, through this production. So that, that's, that's what a national in, income account is.
0: And the distributional aspect of the term?
1: Oh, the distributional aspect. Yeah, the distributional aspect. Okay. So <laughs> when I say that the national accounts talk about how this income is distributed... It doesn't talk about how the income is distributed among individuals or households uh, or, you know, deciles of the population, the bottom 10 percent, the next 10 percent, the top 10 percent. Okay, what I talked about, the distribution is like, well, so much of the income goes to wages and salaries. So much of it goes to supplements, you know, other benefits that employees receive. Uh, So much of it is interest income. So much of it is dividend income. Um, You know, such and such amount is uh, transfer payments uh, to people from government and so forth. So they've got various... kinds of income okay how the total income is divided up into these various kinds of income but that doesn't go to the question of which households which individuals get what share of this that or the other what share of wages goes let's say to the bottom 50 percent you know what share of interest income and dividends go to the bottom 90 percent the normal national accounts don't have any information like that so the distributional national account concept says, yeah, we're going to move from the income and the distribution of the income among kinds of income into who's getting how much, what share of these various kinds of income.
0: Could we go, go into what makes up income a little bit? Because I think that would be helpful for people. that don't quite have a background with, with these kinds of statistics, right?
1: Yeah, this is this is the big issue.
0: Yeah, and people might not realize how complicated the problem is because we often think of income as just the amount of money that's in our paycheck that we put into our bank account or we, when we cash our check at the end of the week. But there's a lot more to um, the income of even working people and, and also you know wealthy people that are included, and, and that's why the it takes a little bit of or a lot of statistical sophistication and a lot of data to, to try to make a judgment on what exactly the nature of income inequality is like in this country. So can you go into exactly, you know, what, it, what, we, what we're talking about when we're talking about income?
1: Right. You know, there is not one thing that is income. There are a variety of ways of defining income and a wide variety of measures corresponding to that. And this is something, the importance the, the importance of this is something that has come out in the debate over the Piketty and Saez stuff. Uh, you know, prior to Piketty and Saez, most people were using just the figures coming from the Census Bureau. Piketty and Sias are, are both, uh, they're, they're using statistics from the, the IRS, and both of those sources uh, have a very narrow definition of income. You know, what you get from the IRS is basically reporting just of taxable income sources, right? Because it's, the, you know, the IRS is a tax agency. So any income that people get that's not taxable just doesn't show up on the tax records. And the Current Population Survey, uh, the the Census Bureau, they report a figure that they call money income. So it's more or less what you're thinking of, you know, that you mentioned, is, you you know, here's the, here's the, 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 the money that I get hold of. Here's the money that I receive. When, for instance, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, though, says national income or personal income for the entire country, they're talking about something much, much larger. You know, I mean, 30, 40% larger than that, because they're looking at other kinds of income. Okay, so let me let me try to explain in, in a few examples why just focusing on the money that people are getting uh, is really inadequate. Maybe that would help. So let's say that, you know, you get pay in your paycheck, but you also get your health care paid for by your employer or a portion of your health care paid for by your employer. Okay. So is that health care provided by your employer? Is that income or is that not income? Well, if you want to say it's not income, you face the following problem. If your employer had not been paying for that health care, you would have to pay for it, right? With money, right? So what would either be happening is, that, you know, your 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 income after paying for the health care would be less than it is now, which nobody believes. Or the, the idea is you're getting less in your paycheck right now because what you would have been paying had the, the employer not been paying, what you would have been paying is in fact being paid by your employer. So, you know, if, if the figure is 40000 you know and you see if it, for, instead of 40,000 you see 32,000 and 8,000 is going to um, the health care okay if you had to fund your own health care it would be exactly the same thing 40,000 you'd get 32,000 you'd pay 8 so you see 32 okay but it's really 40 because the other aid is being paid for by your employer so just looking at the the the, the money that people receive is is, is inadequate same thing with uh, employer provided pension You know, you receive only so much of what the employer is actually paying because the employer is also paying, uh, you know, kicking in money into a, a pension plan for you. And you know you'll you'll eventually see it unless you die or something, right? In the meantime, if the employer were not paying for this, you'd have to pay for it out of your own, you know, uh, salary. Well, that's not what's really happening. What's really happening is instead of you receiving it in cash, you are receiving it, but you're not receiving it in money cash form. You're receiving it by just you know flowing from the employer to the to the pension fund. Uh, you get similar things with, you know, you, you work and you pay social security tax, you pay Medicare tax, but the actual tax is double that. And the employer pays half of the, the tax. You pay half, the employer pays half. Okay. And if the employers were not doing that, you have to kick in the entire amount. Okay. so you, you So you're seeing in your paycheck less cash income, but that's because... What you would have to pay on your by yourself if the employer were not kicking in. The employer is kicking in, so you don't see in your paycheck that part of the um, that, that part of your actual income. You don't see it in your paycheck, but it but it's the same income that, that going to the government that, that would go if, if you were to receive the whole thing and then the government says you pay hundred percent of the Social Security and Medicare taxes instead of you pay fifty and the employers pay fifty. So those are su- those are some of the things going on here, um, okay. So or, or, or let's take uh, government provided uh, benefits to uh, indigent people, you know, poor people, uh, food stamps. Food stamps aren't cash, you know, but they can be used to buy food, you know, or to defray the cost of food. Is that income? Is it not income? Well, you know, I think it's pretty clear. It's income. Uh, and then you know, other 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 things, uh, you know, like that. Uh, Medicaid, Medicare, so forth. You don't want to double count Medicare. You know, a lot of taxes go to fund Medicare the employer pays, what the the worker, the self-employed person pays, but actually, you know, the government is funding Medicare over and above that because it's more costly than the, the, what the taxes are bringing in right now. And, and those are medical benefits, right? So you buy medical benefits with your money income, uh, and well, the government's providing the same medical benefits. So, just to focus on the cash that people receive, it sounds good because it's concrete and you, you smell it and you hold it in your hand, but but that's that's you know or you see it in, in, in figures on on pay stub, but it, it's really inadequate if you want to understand. What it is that people receive and the resources that they can command. I think
0: that's very helpful for people to just make sure they have a sense of everything that's being included in the category of income. You know, why leaving certain things out of the definition of income can produce really different types of results statistically. Yeah,
1: this is this is the this is the very interesting thing. I mean, people would use these money income figures from the Department of uh, from the Census Bureau um, and, you know, the, the the current population survey statistics, people knew it was a narrow definition of money or a uh, narrow definition of income all along. What people did not know until this landmark study by Rich Burkhauser and others, um, which was a response to Piketty and Sias, what people did not really understand was how much... The exclusion of various kinds of income matters in terms of what the measured trend in inequality is. So people basically had this idea, okay, there's different definitions of income, this is narrow, but there was just some sort of naive belief that If we were to use, if we had statistics on, you know, the distribution of a wider, broader concept of income, it would basically show the same thing that we're seeing, give or take. That turned out not to be true. And it turned out not to be true because these benefits, these non-cash sources of income have grown further, you know, faster and faster than income in general, and they have been received disproportionately by the people at the bottom. So the people at the bottom, or at least those not at the top, are are getting an increasing share of their income in non-cash form, and so... When you count only the cash income, it exaggerates the degree of inequality. That's what really has come to consciousness only in about the past decade or so.
0: And that that rising share of non-cash income, is that is that because of rising health care costs? It's
1: partly due to rising health care costs. Uh, it's partly due to rising health care service provision. Uh, and it's partly due to a whole variety of other things. I mean, for instance, the earned income tax credit and you know, t- child tax credit, uh, I mean, there's 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 this sense that, like, you know, social welfare spending has fallen as a share of, of, of income, you know, as we've had Republicans and this and that. But in, in fact, it's gone the other way. And that's partly because of rising health care prices. It's partly a result of rising health care coverage. And we've seen, you know, since since Obama comes in with the um, Obamacare, we've seen a big rise in the actual amount of health care coverage, actually amount of uh, uh, services provided we, we've also we've also seen a, there's yeah there's just been a huge expansion also in in uh, the social Security system as compared to 30 40 years ago um, you know 30 40 years ago you you still had a lot of people who weren't getting a lot of Social Security income because the program only starts during the Great Depression and then various things. But by now, it's kind of like almost everybody's in the uh, the Social Security system and you know getting something like full benefits. Uh, so yeah, there's been a big expansion in uh, Social Security as a, as a share of incomes. Mm-hmm.
0: So these new statistics that the BEA is releasing, they, they don't start until 2007, around the start of the Great Recession. So they can't really tell us anything about the narrative of uh, you know, neoliberal decline and, and income inequality right?
1: Correct. Uh, however, however, what the Bureau of Economic Analysis has done, is to lay a rather different conceptual basis for looking at this issue that's very important. Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman say the key concept, the thing that we have to distribute is national income, okay? National income, which is, you know, it's a term of art. It's, a, it's got a specific definition. And I think that they wanted to do this partly for reasons of convenience that national income is something that is tracked, reported on in a wide variety of countries, and that's part of their goal is to provide a world database. So for reasons of data convenience, I I think that's part of the reason they began to focus on national income. The people at the BEA beginning, you know, at least in 2014, and reaffirming that in their prototype accounts that came out this month they say no really the 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 appropriate measure for talking about how income is distributed among people in the population is not national income it's personal income so they've put the, the the whole problem on a rather different basis because the categories of personal income are well defined uh and National income doesn't quite lend itself to the, it, it's not, it, it's, it's, it's trickier, national income is, uh, when it comes to how that gets distributed among persons. Let me give you the, what I consider to be the prime example. What income do people receive and how is this income distributed from government spending? Besides like, you know, transfer programs, Social Security, Medicare, uh, and so forth. How are uh, local school provision of how is local school provision of educational services you know the public schools, how is that distributed to people who receives what share what share do the people in the top one percent receive or you know military spending and the cops and all of that you know what how is this income distributed to persons. So you get you get this this huge debate. One extreme is to say, well, everybody benefits equally, so we're going to distribute you know this government spending um, you know equally to all individuals. The other extreme is to do what Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman do, which is to say we're going to distribute it to people in proportion to their disposable income. So uh, you know if if the top one percent has eighteen percent of uh disposable personal income we're going to say the top 1% of the population has 18% uh of of the income from uh you know in the implicit income from the provision of public school services and military spending and so forth and and that's rather weird because you know rich people don't tend to have a lot of kids in the public schools <laughs> uh you know but i mean to my mind it's just kind of nuts talking about you know how of military spending like this as providing income to individuals because it's not provided to people as individuals it's it's collective you know and i don't i for instance don't think that i'm getting any benefit from additional military spending i think it's you know hurting me uh, and hurting a lot lot of people and, and the police and stuff like that so um There are a lot of problems with that. When you focus on personal income, like the Bureau of Economic Analysis is, that goes away because that's not included in personal income. The only government spending that gets counted uh, are things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and other government transfers. Okay, so you're, you're limiting the concept. You're saying, okay, maybe this is the collective income, uh, maybe these are services consumed collectively, but they're not being distributed to individuals. And I think that's the right decision. This is not being distributed to persons, to individuals. It doesn't mean that it's not income being received in some sense, but it means that it cannot be distributed. And I think that's the real way of, of I think that's the appropriate way of dealing with this. <laughs>
0: In just a moment we will return to our discussion about income inequality but first a few words from Anja Clard of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors our podcast.
2: Hello, this is Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancip- emancipation must be their own act, but we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements, striving for freedom, lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements, of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice.
0: So just to be clear, even though we're not comparing a BEA stats for inequality during the neoliberal period with Piketty and Saez stats, you know, A being the two, We can still um, draw some conclusions about the accuracy of the Piketty and Saez narrative because uh, the BEA stats bring up, you know, methodological questions.
1: I I think so, even though the Bureau of Economic Analysis says that it doesn't have the, the data really before 2007. I I think that other people are already probably getting the idea. Well, let's try to produce an approximation, you know, based on some guesstimates, uh, using the Bureau oh, of economic analysis concepts mm-hmm. and going backward, uh, and uh, see what we would be seeing as the trend in inequality. Right. Um, but there's some things that we already know from the prototype and the statistics generated mm-hmm. by the prototype in the. Bureau of Economic Analysis uh, model, the current and from 2017 to 20, uh, from from 2007 to 2016, okay, the current and for the whole period, uh, the share of income captured by the top 1%, according to what they're doing, is far, far lower than the top 1% share coming from Piketty, Sayas, and Zuckman. Far lower. Um, you know, for I, I don't have off the top of my head the main
2: mm. the,
1: the actual numbers, but it, it's somewhere around this. Uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis is mm. saying the top one percent share throughout this period may be an average of around twelve and a half percent. Okay, so the top one percent has been getting around twelve and a half percent of all personal income. Okay, something similar that Piketty and Saez. Zuckman have been doing, but with national income and their way of counting national income, it's something like, I don't know, maybe 17, 18%. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Mm -hmm. already you got a sense that, like, you're you're not going to be able to produce a a big U turn like even the Piketty Sia Zuckman new approach, you know, has produced. You're not going to be able to produce a huge upswing, okay, Mm -hmm. if you use the BEA statistics because the thing hasn't risen to such levels, you know, 17, 18, 19%. So I mean, we already we already have a sense that uh, you know what the BEA is mm-hmm. doing is just not going to give us numbers uh, like you know what or would not give us numbers like uh, Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman have uh, have uh, produced for a variety of reasons. Um, and we, we've talked about some of the reasons about how how, how you count income, um, but there's you know other things as well. Um, you know, Piketty, Saez, Zuckman use equal split um, in uh, equal split individuals. Twenty plus they, they they define who they're counting as as individuals, and they split adult incomes in half. Uh, and that creates problems because their definition of an adult is 20-plus, anybody 20 years and older. And a lot of people who are 20-plus and older, you know, are dependents of other people. They're their kids, you know, in college. And, you know, they're, they're getting some income, but they're being counted independently, you know, because they're 20 plus. And so their, their income of $3,000 that they get, you know, during the summer when they're working, you know, between one year of college and the next, that's being said to be a low-income individual. That's just kind of nuts. Um, But that's the way they do it. Uh, The Bureau of Economic Analysis, like some other people, counts households based on the idea that a household shares resources, and they adjust the households for size. Uh, based on the idea that, well, maybe two people can't live as cheaply as one, but two people living together can live more cheaply than two people living alone. So they make adjustments for that. I mean, the only thing that, that remains in my mind is this. I mean, Piketty, Sias, and Zuckman said when they produced their distributional national accounts that this is a prototype and we hope that the Bureau of Economic Analysis and other countries' national income accounting agencies can benefit from their work, but we want them to take it over. We think that the you know this is a proper role for the government and that they can do it better than private researchers. And you know, Zuckman said this in testimony before a congressional committee last October or November. So they're very much in favor of this in principle. The question in my mind is, and obviously was the question in your mind, okay, how are they going to respond? You know, have they responded? No, they haven't yet. But they have found ways of producing numbers, and I'm not saying this is intentional, okay? I'm not accusing them of cherry-picking, of cooking the books or anything. But time and again, they find ways of producing inequality statistics that show a much larger and much more consistent rise in inequality than everybody else. And my my question is really, you know, is the suspicion that I have correct? You know, is the game over? Or are ways still going to be found to create a lot of variation in different approaches that tell us different things so that, you know, political interests, uh, you know, the anti-neoliberal left, the populists, uh, the the right-wingers can all pick you know, or think that it's legitimate for them to pick the, the studies that they like and emphasize them and cherry-pick among the variety of approaches out there. Um, you know, will, will will that game continue? Will Picketing and Saez and Zuckman say, okay, you know, we, we accept the the government's estimates. Will out and Splinter and others say, okay, we accept the government's estimates, uh, at least as a basis for discussion? Or will we continue to get this proliferation uh, and you know, debate over the most elemental things, which is not only, you know, what the measures show, but what is it that we're indeed measuring? So I I expect there to be less debate, but this is just an expectation. So that's the real question that remains for me, is is, is what's going to happen, you know, a few years down the road? Are the political pressures to be able to tell whatever story you want to tell going to be so overwhelming that this kind of thing is going to continue or will there at least be some basis for saying, okay, here is the BEA approach, and you know, we might happen not to agree with it, and, and, and so forth here's here's my my major problem though my major problem is not even with the proliferation of approaches it's with the cherry picking my, my problem is with you know the, the 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 journalists and the political interests that like will just take the stuff from Piketty and Sias or Piketty Sias Zuckman and say this is what happened you know totally ignoring you know other studies that come to different conclusions I think that that is going to be a lot lot harder to do now that the Bureau of Economic Analysis is producing accounts you might disagree with with them. But I think it'll be hard to ignore it and then pretend it doesn't exist. And that's all to the good. I'm all, I'm all in favor of people producing various estimates and having some debate about these. So let's, let's have that debate. But, you know, one thing I've been trying to get into people's consciousness for about 10 years now is that there are different concepts of income, different like units of observation, households, tax units, and so forth. And these differences matter for the degree of inequality that gets measured. So I think that if there continues to be debate... Uh, it's going to have to come to grips with why these people are getting different estimates. And I don't think it'll fly to say that, you know, the government is just cooking the books to underestimate the degree of inequality. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's going to fly.
0: Well, that's all the time we have on this episode of Radio Free Humanity. Please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org for more episodes, to leave a comment, to leave a donation. Uh, Please don't forget to share the podcast with friends. You can download, you can leave comments, and all those other good things. We hope to hear from you.